Good morning. My fault. Good to see you guys this morning. Hey, thank you, worship team, for leading us, getting us set, moving us right into the direction of where we need to go. I'm, I'm glad to see you guys. Thanks again for being here this morning. If you're listening online later, thanks for listening online later. You found us in part four of a series called Anchor Point. Um, in which we're trying to tie the anchor of our little life raft there to something that will hold in the middle of all the undercurrents of life, the ideas, the philosophies, the thinking that will push us around and make us make life decisions that may or may not <clears throat> excuse me, be based on what's actually even good for you and certainly maybe not what's right and, and true for what we understand God's word to tell us and teach us. And so we have found ourselves here speaking to the issue of what is kind of right and true and good. What's a place in your life and my life that I can anchor everything that I have to. And so we went to the little book, the little letter of First Peter. Uh, Peter was a follower of Jesus who was very charismatic in his um, affections and very outgoing in his personality, had very good highs and very low lows. That was kind of Peter. And he wrote in his little letter to a church um, in the northwestern province of, of Rome, he said ultimately this toward the end of his letter, that this is why I wrote. I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. So, since this is the truth, and this is God's grace, what you're to do is stand fast in it. So don't, in all the things that come, don't ever let go of this truth of the grace of God. And so we decided, well, let's explore what does Peter mean, and what is it that is the true grace of God, and how does he explain that through this letter that he writes to these people, right? So week one, we covered a topic that if you get nothing else from the entire series and you just get this, I think you've got it, and this will change your life. It'll impact the next generation of people. This will be one of those long-lasting realities that will stay with you if you and I can really get a hold of this principle. It's simply this, that I am not the center of the universe and God is, that I'm just not the center of the universe, all the struggles and trials and tribulations and pain and all that that I go through, I am just not at the center of the universe. And I want it to be explained to me, and I want the whys, and I want the whens, and I want all the answers, but I'm not in a position, as Greg led us earlier in Job 38 to 42, I'm not in a position to answer God when he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Answer me if you can. I am not the center of the universe, but God is. And so we began there. And it's a pretty heady statement to make, pretty strong statement. But that's where Peter begins in his letter, essentially saying that. Week two, we went into this idea that suffering is the pain on the journey from what I think I want to what I really need. That it's that, that pain of I wanted that, but I don't have it, and I think I need this, and it's that the, the tension we live in. That, that's kind of what suffering is. Last week, grateful to Chuck Holt, director of the Factory Ministries, and member here at GPC for leading us into the next section of Peter. Uh, First Peter saying this, that in the midst of suffering, hope allows me to see the end and not focus on the process. Understanding that hope, when put out there, when we think right about that and think right about the salvation that is there and the grace of God, it gives us the ability to think beyond what we see right now and what's right in front of us here. So we're grateful for that reminder. Chuck, thank you for that. So now we find ourselves dropping into part four. Now, to get going on this and to get you thinking about part four of our series, here's where I want to begin. Um, how many of you would say that you are, you consider yourself a bargain hunter? How many of you are married to a bargain hunter? Yeah, those hands went up faster and higher than the bargain hunter people. I just want you to know that. All right. 
So isn't that funny? Now, now in the, in the U.S. and in the West in particular, we don't often identify ourselves as a shame-honor society like many in the East would. And so if you're in the East, the, the shame-honor culture is just more prevalent, which is why there's greater honor for the older generation and, and all that, that kind of stuff. So we're, in, in the West, we don't often do that. However, we still do honor and we still do shame certain practices. And so do we or do we not honor the bargain hunter? We generally honor the bargain hunter. And we say, because this, these are good stories to tell, right? At a, at a graduation party that you may have had this weekend or you know, at a family gathering or whatever, in part of the small talk that we make, it's like, oh, I got such a great deal on this new shirt. You know, it was on sale at a garage sale, 50 cents. I talked them down to a quarter, right? I mean, isn't that awesome? You know, I saved 25 cents on this thing. And then, hey, you know, we just were looking for a car, and I played hardball with the dealer, right? And I walked off the lot and I told them that's my offer and that's it. And I was done. I left and, I sh- and they called me back the next day and they said, come get the car. We'll meet your price, man. I'm telling you, we got a deal, right? And we're like, wow, that's really good. Good for you. Can you buy my next car, right? Because I'm not like that. You know, speaking about the house, you know, he got a house, got a great deal. I waited and then I kind of lowballed him and you don't use the word lowball, but you know, I gave him a low offer, okay? And we finally got the house. And so we generally are people who are like, this is good, especially with companies that we don't really care about, right? Like Comcast. <laughs> right? Like, hey, I really gave them the business. I called Comcast. Like, like, like there's not even people that work at Comcast, right? Just like a thing. And so like I got my cable for the next six months for like two cents a month or whatever, right? And we're like, man, good for you. Way to beat the system and way to beat the big company. You know, good for you. Honor, honor, honor on you. Now, flip it around. You ever been in a context, now think about shame for a minute. You ever been in a context where you go to someone's house and um, they're kind of walking you through and you're going in and you learn they just got a new appliance or something like that. Uh, and you, hey, do you mind tell me, you know, where you got it? Because we just got one too. And they tell you, well, we we found it on sale. It was only you got the same one at your house. You know, it was only whatever fifteen hundred bucks at whatever Martin's. And you know, you just got the same one for a thousand dollars somewhere else. And you, like in your mind, you're like, mm, shame, shame, shame. Like, <laughs> like shame on you. Like I know a guy who would help you. Or if you see that they bought the house. And then you don't ask them because you don't want to be too personal, but you look later in the public records or whatever to see how much the house sold for. And you're like, I, and in your mind, you're just thinking, hmm, like, I can't believe they overpaid for that house. Like, mm. And you just will have the conversation sometimes in the car with your significant other, like, oh, man, can you believe they did that? And, you know, I can't. And so aren't we also, isn't it true? Aren't we also a culture that shames the overpayer, right? That you blew it. You had a chance to be a bargain hunter, but you blew it. And so we are not traditionally known as an honor-shame culture, but there are things, including bargain hunting, that will say we honor you for getting a good deal. And man, shame on you. Like, poorly done for paying too much for something. Now, in light of that, I want to say there are times, and there are not many times, but there are times when that actually gets flipped around, where we honor the overpayer and shame the underpayer. That happens in context when the person knows what's really at stake is not the price. Let me give you an illustration. Think of a lemonade stand that your eight-year-old daughter, eight-year-old girl and neighborhood girl is running in the corner of your neighborhood or down the street from where you are. There's a lemonade stand. Now, how would it play out to you? You're at a graduation party this afternoon or this evening, 
and someone comes to you and like, man, I just went out for a walk with my family this afternoon, and it was kind of warm out like it will be, and there was a lemonade stand. They were asking 50 cents. I talked them down to 10 cents, and I got some lemonade from this eight-year-old girl for 10 cents. Hmm. <laughs> like shame. Shame on you. Now, if that was Comcast selling cable on the corner, like honor, honor, but an eight-year-old girl selling lemonade, like shame. Shame on you. Now, what if, play that out the other way, what if that same scenario happens and someone walks by the lemonade stand and they say, you know what? I saw this girl. I know her family. I know what she's going through. And I said, you know what? Before I even drink your lemonade, I want you to know that lemonade is going to be so good. You're only charging 50 cents. You don't know what it's really worth. Here's 10 bucks. Keep the change. This is worth it. Overpayment. Honor. Right? honor. There are times when we will honor the overpayer and shame the underpayer. And here's what I want to say this morning about you and me in terms of how we see ourselves before God. Simply this, that we were bought for more than we think we're worth so we can live for something more valuable than we ever imagined. That we were bought, you and me were bought for more than we think we're actually worth. Therefore, we can live for something more valuable than we ever imagined. I want to explain that because that's where I think Peter is going in this next section of understanding the power of what theologians and Bible people call the redemption of God. Buying us, purchasing us, redeeming us to something new. And he overpaid badly for you and for me, but in doing so brought great honor to the situation. So let's look at it in the book of 1 Peter. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Peter. If you don't, there's a Bible near you. Um, It's in the second third of that Bible, uh, what we call the New Testament. You'll find uh, hopefully Hebrews and then James, um, and then you'll roll into the 1 Peter right in there. So 1 Peter chapter 1, we're at verse 17. I'm reading from the New International Version. Peter writes there, and he says this, um, Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Now, if you'll notice that the the opening section of 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, the first couple of verses, he talks about being a stranger again. And here he brings it back up again. In other words, you and me, as, as if you find yourself in a place in life now where you say, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, we're strangers in this world. We, this isn't our home. So he's reminding us again, you're, you're a stranger in this place. And God the Father judges each man's work impartially. Therefore, live here in reverent fear. So kind of, in other words, kinda, just for a minute, um, sober up. If you know the context of 1 Peter, you've been here, you heard this, that he's writing to people who are in suffering, and they might be thinking, um, we're going to get a special deal because we're going through suffering, and God is going to show us extra grace and favor than he'll show other people, all that. And he's saying God is impartial with all this. And so live in reverent fear, meaning be aware that your actions and your attitudes are, are being seen and, and observed by a God who judges impartially. He's a gracious and forgiving God, slow to anger and abounding in love, absolutely. But live in reverent fear, kind of sober up for a minute and realize that things that I'm doing and the ways that I'm responding are important. They're important. And they signify my faith. They represent my faith to people. 
So here's where he goes next. What does all that mean? Verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. An amazing set of two verses right there. You know it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were, what's that word? Redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect. Uh, If you remember, I said that Christianity in this time grew up under the protection of Judaism. And in that sense, even though Peter was writing to people who were probably a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, some who had a background in Judaism and some who didn't, uh, most everyone would have understood what Jews believed and where they really came from. The the primary primary Jewish uh, story was the story of the Exodus. In the Old Testament, you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. The book, the second book of the Bible, Exodus, is the dominant storyline of the people of Israel. It is, it is the story from which almost everything else hangs in the Old Testament and through to the New. The whole concept and imagery of the redemption of God through the Exodus. It's such a massive piece of their history that it became... Um, the overarching theme for their story. So in Exodus chapter 6 and verse 6, we read this. Therefore, say to the Israelites, um, this is God speaking, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will, what? Redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. That God is speaking to Moses and, and Aaron as well, but Moses in particular, and saying, go do this. I am the Lord. A reminder, I'm going to do this, and I will redeem your people. This is right after in chapter 5 of Exodus where things went really bad for the Israelites immediately. Moses and Aaron show up and they kind of they stir up the, the bees' nest with Pharaoh and they say, it's time to let our people go worship. He said, I don't think so. Like, what, what do they need to worship for? You mean they have time to think about going to worship? They have time to think about sacrificing to their gods? And clearly I haven't been giving them enough work to do. So then he tells his taskmasters, all right, keep the quota of bricks that they have to make and add to their job. They now have to go find the straw wherever they can find it and make all the bricks that they still have to make. An impossible task. And so all the nation of Israel who is enslaved in Egypt at the time, now they're getting, not only do they have to keep all their work up to speed, now they're getting beat at the end of the day because they're not getting the job done. So thank you, Moses and Aaron, for coming by and telling Pharaoh that we should be let go to go worship. And then in that context, God says this to to Moses, I am the Lord, and I'm going to redeem the people. And if you know the story, all these plagues end up coming through uh, Egypt, you know, from frogs to boils to insects to the Nile turning to blood cattle dying and ultimately to the firstborn child dying in which finally Pharaoh lets the people go and you know they go and then he gets angry and decides to follow them and you know swallows up by the sea and all that so that's kind of the story that story is the primary story that sets the people of God in context they are the redeemed people and so if you're a Jew even if you're just a Gentile living in a context where there's Jews you know when you hear the word redemption you go back to this story, and you remember that the God of, of the Israelites is a God of redemption. It's amazing. It's an amazing story. Now, here's what happens. 
that theme of redemption moves beyond simply a God who redeems, but also now very practically to a God who redeems. Um, because he redeems, then he is asking you as a follower of his to be in the business of redemption yourself. So put yourself in this context. If you fall into hard times, you are living on a land that belongs to your ancestors. And so if you fall into hard times, you don't go to the bank to get a loan because they didn't exist at the time. You have to sell part of your land. Because that's the only way that you can kind of make money to get through the hard times that you're in. And God has put in place in the book of Leviticus a system whereby a family member of yours can come and, here's the word again, redeem your land for you. And can buy that land and redeem it and hold it for you. Where essentially in our language you become you have the right of first refusal to the future purchase of that land when things get better for you. There's also the whole issue of slavery, where if you become a slave, if you try to, you come into financial hardship, you have to sell your land, and then you have to sell yourself into slavery. That's what would happen sometimes. That a, a family member could come, and here's the language again, they could, could redeem you and buy you back and buy your freedom. And you could, if you saved up enough money, buy or redeem your own freedom. And so this whole idea of redemption, we don't like it because it makes you and me feel like a commodity, something to be bought or purchased, kind of like the slave trade of many years ago. But here's the language and the imagery of the Old Testament, is that God is a God of redemption and purchasing and buying back for his purposes. And then he gives to his people. Now model this in your property, in your management, in your your slave trade that you have, in the, the servanthood that you have, the indentured servanthood that you have model this. And so Peter writes and he says, you have been redeemed. And immediately the, the light bulb should go off, the flashes should go off on our brains. Like, So in other words, I was in slavery to something like Israel was. Yes. I was, I was captured by another worldview, another way of thinking. Yes. So before I was redeemed, someone else or something else owned me. Yes. And Peter's saying, you've been redeemed. And then he says, how? Or excuse me, from what? He said, from, and here's what what the Egypt is in this context, from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. From the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. This language is simply meaning the way that you are supposed to live and you kind of know intuitively that you're supposed to live in a culture whereby you can uh, garner honor for yourself instead of shame. So if you live in Lancaster County, you know that a hard work ethic is more prized than a, a... soft work ethic, right? You just just know that, and if you don't know that, now you do. <laughs> you know that managing your money, okay, and let's call it hoarding your money, is sometimes more value than actually being generous with your finances or spending, overspending. I mean, you just kind of know that, wow, people here can be kind of tight. You know, there's that old joke of how um, the copper wire get invented, right? And that is from two, whatever you want to call it, some people put in all kinds of people there, but two, whatever, tight wad Lancaster Countyans fighting over a penny, right? Just stretch it out, and thus we have the copper wire. So there's this part of part of our culture and our society that says we honor the people who are very tight, you know, with, with, their, with their funds. So there's parts of our culture that are handed down to us. And what Peter's saying is that you, before you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you were part of another system. You were part of another way that was handed down to you so that when it came time to how do you handle family conflict, 
there's a certain way of life that you thought was the right thing to do. When it came time to how do I manage my money, there was a certain way that you thought was right to do. When it came time to how do I even relate to God, there's a certain way that you thought was right to do. And Peter's saying you were redeemed, you were purchased from that empty way of life passed down to you from your forefathers. You were purchased, you were redeemed from that to something else. And he says that the purchase price, what was paid for you, what was paid for you, is more than you would have ever thought that you were worth. If you would have put a price tag on yourself and said, this is what my life is worth, it would not have been anything close to what was paid for you or paid for me. So if I could put a price tag on my life, I don't think I would dare be so bold as to say that my life might be worth one of your lives. I don't think I could dare be so bold to say that if I could choose the value of my life, I might say that if one of us had to die, well, I'm a little more valuable than you, or, or you, or you. So, sorry about that, but it's just the way I value my life. I mean, who would be so bold and arrogant to say that? I would never say that. You know, what is the value and worth of my life? And, and here's what Peter says in verse 19, so check that out in verse 19. Here's the price. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. In other words, the value of your life is not just another human being because that's too, it's too easy. The value of your life was God's death. And, and who would ever be so bold and arrogant to say, my life is worth so much I'd rather have God die than me. <laughs> kidding me? We'd commit them to some kind of institution. But this is what Peter's saying. You were redeemed. You were bought from an empty way of thinking and moved to something else by the very blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish or defect. You are worth more than you ever thought you were. Why? Not just so that you can have a high self-esteem and think well of yourself while there's value in that, but so they can really understand what is really worth living for. So check it out. Verse, let's move down to verse 23. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. And Peter's just saying again, you were redeemed, you were purchased from what was perishable to imperishable. You were moved, all men are like grass, verse 24, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. Are the flowers of the field beautiful? Absolutely. Are the flowers of the field worth making calendars over? Absolutely. Do they make great postcards? Absolutely. Are they great for a romantic evening walk when the sun is setting? Absolutely. There's great beauty in the glory of man, isn't there? There is great beauty in, in who you are and what you create. There is great beauty in all that. And so there is great beauty, let's say, in the Eiffel Tower. It's beautiful. But there's even greater beauty in Mount Everest. Right? There is great beauty, if you will, or glory or majesty in man figuring out how to put a fellow man on the moon. There's great majesty and glory in that, absolutely. 
But there's even greater majesty and glory in who put the moon there in the first place. Right? And this is what Peter is saying, that you are saved, you are redeemed from having to think that the world is about yourself. You are saved from that servitude and that slavery of thinking that my glory and my majesty and my strength needs to be preserved and saved at all costs because the world isn't about me, it's not about you. Your glory is great, absolutely. Your beauty is great. Your intelligence is not to be questioned. Your ability to think, speak, lead your business, whatever, is not meant to be questioned or diminished or devalued at all. You're made in God's image. There's just an inherent beauty and strength and glory in who you are, absolutely. But in light of God, who put the moon there? Who put the solar system there? Who created the Alps? Mount Everest. Pacific Ocean. I mean, who, who did this? Where were you? I laid the foundations of the earth. God asked Job, where were you? So he said, you've been saved, you've been redeemed from that empty way of life. And then he goes on. Because the implications of this are so significant for us. If we've been redeemed, if we've been bought for something else, here's what's so important. Verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2, all right? Verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2. Therefore, in light of that, that you've been redeemed from what's perishable to imperishable, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, I don't know if you noticed it in a quick reading, um, but this is the second time that birth, babies, or newborn is used in this section. So in verse 23 of chapter 1, for you have been born again. And then in verse 2 of chapter 2, like newborn babies crave spiritual milk. And so Peter is laying out this imagery of of birth. Think about a little kid for a minute with me. Think about a one-year-old. Parents of one-year-olds. How many parents of one-year-olds do we have right now? We got a one-year-old or younger? Right. right. How many of you ever had a one-year-old or younger? How many of you ever been one? All right, now we got involvement. All right. Imagine what it would be like to say to a a parent of a one-year-old, um, you know, your kid is beautiful and, you know, great, cute, loving and all that, um, but, you know, where they're at right now, that's where they're going to stay. Like, they're never going to learn to use the toilet. They're going to keep getting you up at night when they need something. They're just going to scream from their room till you come. They're going to keep saying dada and never mama. Can you imagine that? We would never say that because we know it's just not true, right? Why? Because there is an anticipation and expectation of growth, right? Absolutely. Babies grow, kids grow, people grow, right? I mean, isn't that just the expectation? It's foolish to say that baby is just not going anywhere. Like they're not, they're not going to, they're not going to grow. Of course, they're going to grow. That's what people do. People are made to grow. That's what happens. And so he says here, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, verse 2, so that by it you may what? That was good. Okay. So that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. And so here's the implications of that. Because we've been redeemed from something from perishable to imperishable, now you can grow. 
I don't know if you've ever been a spiritual fatalist where you've said, and we talked about that this morning in our Young Adult Sunday School class, I appreciated the conversation, about how this, there's this assumption that I'm always going to be who I am. I'm never going to change. <laughs> Worse even is thinking that your spouse is never going to change, or your friend is never able to change, or your mom or your dad or your coworker just never able to change. That's who they are. It's just who I am to be an idiot. I can't help my temper. I'm always going to struggle with this temptation. I've tried to kick that habit before, and I never have, and it's never going to happen again, even though I try and try and try and try. It's just never going to happen. Spiritual fatalism. I mean, what's worse than losing hope? So here's what Peter said. Come on, you've been bought at a price that you don't even think you're worth. Why? So you cannot change or grow? You kidding me? You've been bought and moved from an empty way of life and from that perishable life is all about me and this is all that life is and the beauty and majesty of what I am. You've been brought to something imperishable. So like newborn babies who will grow because you've been born again into the faith, crave spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. So that hope is restored to you. So that you know, come on, it is not the end. I know you failed. You know that I failed. And yet we grow together in our salvation. Now that you have tasted, he ends in verse 3, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so what does he mean? What does it mean to crave pure spiritual milk to grow? Here's what I think he said. To crave the milk of the word of God in light of the goodness of God. Meaning that because God has been good, I crave more and more of him. Let me take you back to my lemonade stand for a minute. Imagine you have the lemonade stand, and God walks by. You're selling lemonade for 50 cents, and he says, you know what? You are way undervaluing what you have to offer. I'm going to buy this for a million bucks. I've got a million on me. Here we go. What's your response? I got another lemonade stand. I got, you know. <laughs> Isn't it gratitude, first of all? Like, what, are you kidding me? I mean, wow. And then there's this sense of, because of your goodness and kindness and mercy, what do I need to do? I mean, teach me. I want to become more like this, and I want to show to others the kind of generosity that you showed to me. I mean, you've just redeemed me, bought, if you will, something at a price that was beyond what I could ever have imagined, beyond what I ever thought I was worth. And I want to show to others what this means to live this way. And so the so what to me is very simple in this regard. And so what is this? That change is the expectation for the believer and God's goodness is the motivation. So for you and me, the expectation is that I will grow. The expectation is not a legalistic, heavy down, like just do more discipline and grow, 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 grow. But the expectation is hope for us. That's what I mean. That there is hope for all the things that you say, you know what, I can't ever get over that. I don't think my husband will ever be this. I don't think my wife will ever be this. I don't think my boss will ever get it. I don't think the person that I'm sitting next to here is ever going to quite understand me. You've been purchased from something that's an empty way of living to something that is new, an imperishable hope in God. And I know, I know how hard it is to hope again in things that you've given up hope in. I understand that. But I'm just saying that you have been bought, you've been purchased with the precious blood of Christ for a reason. And it's not so that you can go on to live the way that you always have, 
hopeless and not thinking that anything can ever change or happen in your life. Just not what you were purchased for. You're purchased to see the world from a completely different way of thinking. To see the world from the imperishable view. To understand that God has bought me for the sake of hope and new life. So change is the expectation. And God's goodness is the motivation. I don't change because I have to, I have to, I have to. But man, God has been so good and so kind to me that I will do that. So, if this is true, and I think it is, that we were bought for more than we think we're worth so we can live for something more valuable than we ever imagined. If that is true, what is it that you know needs to change for you? What is it that you know? And I've just not been pushing into that. And I've honestly, I've just lost hope. I've just lost hope that I can ever change. I've lost hope that my spouse will ever change. I've lost hope that I can grow. I've lost hope that my family will grow. I've lost hope in the situation. If you were bought at a price, it's more than you ever thought you were worth, so you can live in a way that you never valued or understood that you could imagine. What is it that needs to change? And where is it that hope needs to be infused in you again? Where is it you need to go back and say, God, I want to trust you, I want to believe in you, and I want to be gracious with people, but I need the help. I need the help. See, God kind of comes by and he says, left to your own, you will create things that will be of great glory and great majesty in this little world. You'll create the Eiffel Tower. You'll build great monuments. You'll paint beautiful paintings. You'll sing beautiful songs. You'll accomplish incredible athletic achievements. You will build great businesses. You'll make a lot of money. You'll make a difference around the world for social justice and all those kinds of things. Good on you. Just a reminder, you're going to die. The flowers fade, fall. The grass falls, fades, and withers. Your glory is but a moment. And so we've been bought from a life where we think this is all there is. And this is the best I've got. We've been purchased for something new. And hope and change and anticipation of what can be is in that new peace. And because of God's goodness and kindness and favor to you and to me. He's saying, you're worth it. And you're worth the purchase of my son's blood to draw you in to be courageous, to hope and trust again. Come on, try it again. Try it again. Come with me. Not because you're good enough to try it in the first place, but because you need to be courageous. Because you're worth more than you realize. Because God's glory is worth more than we realize. And this, at the end of the day, is not about my glory, my majesty, but it's about His. And you were bought for that. And so how do we reflect that? In my marriage, my parenting, in my singleness, in my dating, in my school, and in my business. Where is it that you know that you need to hope again? come back to God and say, God, I've lost hope. Lost hope here, but I need to grow. Help me to grow, because this is what you've made me to be. We pray to God. Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this section of Scripture, for this truth that reminds us that we've been purchased from a way of thinking to another way of thinking, from a way of life to a completely different way of life. 
And I pray that you would give us courage as men and women, boys and girls, who, who have, for some of us, given up hope that things will ever be different and are stuck in a spiritual fatalism kind of perspective. Remind us that we are expected, anticipated to grow and change. And this is so hard because it means hard words like forgiveness. It means hard words like reconciliation. It means hard words like deference and yielding. It means taking a hard position like giving up my rights for what I thought I was owed. So I pray that you would help us not just to see the faults in the others and how other people around us need to grow, which we can see in a hurry, but I pray that you would help us to a man, to a woman, see how it is that we need to grow, where we need to push in to a worldview that is not about us, but is about you. We know ultimately, Father, as this song says, that you're the cornerstone. Christ alone is the cornerstone. Remind us, remind us again, that it is by his blood that we've been purchased for a new way of living. This we pray in Jesus' name.